This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Sometimes the most important words in journalism, in breaking news especially, are we don't know. Often that means it's worse than we think. Last week, we had such a case. We learned that the number of migrant children separated from their parents at the southern border under the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance policy is much higher than we previously thought. And my guest is in a unique position to address the long-term impact of that policy. First, some background to refresh your memory. Last April, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the zero-tolerance policy. It turns out this had begun quietly about six months earlier. This policy called for the criminal prosecution of all adults entering the U.S. illegally. And as part of that process, more than 2,700 migrant children who crossed the border with their parents were forcefully separated from those parents and sent to roughly 100 shelters around the country. The system was so disorganized that many parents did not know how to contact their children or even where their children had been sent. In June, three months after the zero tolerance policy was announced, a federal judge ordered that it be ended and that all separated children be reunited with their families within 30 days. By that July deadline, more than 700 of the initial 2,700 children were still separated from their families. By November, four months after the judge's deadline, there were still more than 140 children not back with their families. Fast forward to last week and a story from the New York Times, which reported that the Trump administration most likely separated thousands more children from their parents at the southern border than was previously believed. That's according to a new report by federal government inspectors. The story adds, we may never know the precise number because there is still no integrated data system tracking all these families. How many children are still separated? How many children were separated? We don't know. The long-term impact on the children is hard for many of us to imagine, but not for my guest. Her name is Yoka Verdoner. Yoka was separated from her parents at age eight. She is now 84. Yoka Verdoner, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. What I'd like to start with is the piece that you wrote in The Guardian that was very widely shared on social media and really moved a lot of people on the child separations that are going on at the border, at our southwest border. And if you could just read it, uh, read the full piece, if you could. Okay, so the title is Nazis Separated Me From My Parents As a Child. The Trauma Lasts a Lifetime. And then there's a subtitle, I know from experience that the Trump sanctions brutality at the U.S. border with Mexico will scar its child victims for life. The events occurring now on our border with Mexico where children are being removed from the arms of their mothers and fathers and sent to foster families or shelters make me weep and gnash my teeth with sadness and rage. I know what they are going through. When we were children, my two siblings and I were also taken from our parents. And the problems we've experienced since then portend the terrible things that many of these children are bound to suffer. 
My family was Jewish, living in 1942 in the Netherlands when the country was occupied by the Nazis. We children were sent into hiding with foster families who risked arrest and death by taking us in. They protected us, they loved us, and we were extremely lucky to have survived the war and been well cared for. Yet the lasting damage inflicted by that separation reverberates to this day, decades hence. Have you heard the screams and seen the panic of a three-year-old when it has lost sight of its mother in a supermarket? That scream subsides when mother reappears around the end of the aisle. This is my brother writing in recent years. He tries to deal with his lasting pain through memoir. It's been 76 years, yet he revisits the separation obsessively. He still writes about it in the present tense. In the first home, I scream for six weeks. Then I am moved to another family and I stop screaming. I give up. Nothing around me is known to me. All those around me are strangers. I have no past. I have no future. I have no identity. I am nowhere. I am frozen in fear. It is the only emotion I possess now. As a three-year-old child, I believe that I must have made some terrible mistake to have caused my known world to disappear. I spent the rest of my life trying desperately not to make another mistake. My brother's second foster family cared deeply about him and has kept in touch with him all these years. Even so, he is almost 80 years old now and is still trying to understand what made him the anxious and dysfunctional person he turned into as a child and has remained for the rest of his life. A man with charm and intelligence, yet who could never keep a job because of his inability to complete tasks. After all, if he persisted, he might make a mistake again and that would bring his world to another end. My younger sister was separated from our parents at five. She had no understanding of what was going on and why she suddenly had to live with a strange set of adults. She suffered thereafter from lifelong, profound depression. I was older, seven. I was more able than my siblings to understand what was happening and why. I spent most of the war with Dick and Ella Reinders. Dick was mayor of a small rural village and he and Ella lived in a beautiful house next to a wide waterway. Ella had a warm smile, and Dick referred to me as his oldest daughter. I was able to go to school normally, make friends, and became part of village life. I was extraordinarily lucky, but I was not with my own parents, sister, and brother. And eventually, I also had to leave the Reinders, my loving second family. I was returning to my own family, but this meant another separation. In later life, I was never able to really settle down. I lived in different countries and was successful in work, but never able to form lasting relationships with partners. I never married. 
I almost forgot to mention my own anxiety and depression and my many years in psychotherapy. My grief and anger about today's southern border come not just from my personal life. As a retired psychotherapist who has worked extensively with victims of childhood trauma, I know all too well what awaits many of the thousands of children taken by our government at the border who are now in, quote, processing centers, unquote, and foster homes, no matter how decent and caring those places might be. We can expect thousands of lives to be damaged for many years or forever by zero tolerance. We can expect old men and women decades from now still suffering, still remembering, still writing in the present tense. What is happening in our own backyard today is as evil and criminal as what happened to me and my siblings as children in Nazi Europe. It needs to be stopped immediately. Well, Yoka, I have to say that listening to you read that, I actually noticed certain things even more so than reading it in my own voice. First, to clarify, because many people, when they hear that you were a child survivor of the Holocaust, might attribute the lifelong pain that you felt as a result of this to the particular circumstances of the Holocaust. But if I'm reading this correctly, you say, eventually, I also had to leave the loving second family who had taken you in and protected you during Nazi occupation. You returned to your own family, but this meant another separation. So did your entire family survive? No. My mother died in Auschwitz. My father survived in hiding, and my two younger siblings also survived in hiding. Hmm. And other family members were also killed. My father's parents were killed, and my mother's brother died of starvation in Bergen-Belsen. Hmm. I guess the first question is, do you think that the lifelong struggles that both of your siblings had and your brother continues to have would have been mitigated in some way if your mother had survived and other relatives had survived? Or was it the separation itself that so remains with you all? Well, I think none of it helped. How shall I put it? The separation was bad, particularly, I think, for my younger siblings, I understood much more what was going on. Separation certainly wasn't good. But then, of course, it did get even worse after the war. My mother had died. And then, in addition, the family that survived had either escaped to the United States or had immigrated before the war began. So my father wanted to leave Holland, where all these terrible things had happened. He had lost his parents and his wife. And he wanted to join his sisters. So in December 1946, we emigrated to the United States and had to make all the adjustments that immigrants have to make. And then in addition, my father got sick. He got stomach cancer and he died in 1947. So we were taken in by my father's sister and brother-in-law, who actually he didn't really want us. 
And so, you know, <laughs> our life in our teenage years wasn't very good either. I certainly didn't like being in America. You said you lived overseas a lot. The way you conveyed it, you just were not able to really settle down or stay in one place. But America became your home and your home country. Was there a point where you felt like you were rooted here, or do you still not feel a sense of rootedness? No, I think my roots are fairly shallow, let me put it that way. Hmm. I was in a group of child survivors here in Berkeley, California, and most of us felt that way. I was really struck by some of your brother's writing that you quoted from, and of course, none of it was his fault, but he felt like he made some kind of mistake, and he has spent the rest of his life trying desperately not to make another mistake, but to have that kind of a lifelong impact, and yet he seems so emotionally aware, and you know, clearly as a psychotherapist yourself, I'm sure you tried to repair it, and I don't know what your brother's done, but certainly you are sending out an alarm bell to our nation that we are setting these separated children up for really a lifetime of pain as a result of these separations. What can one do to try to repair that damage? I think you're jumping ahead. I think we first have to acknowledge how much damage there is. And no, I think some of it really doesn't get repaired at all. And you know, there are child psychologists and pediatricians weighing in now who are saying that the toxic stress these children are undergoing actually changes the structure of their brain. And I think that's, for instance, what happened to my brother, mm. who was three. Now, I don't think the structure of my brain was changed. I think emotionally I was changed, but I think in the case of these younger children, yeah. The extreme anxiety, and you see it already now in the children that are being reunited with their parents. You know, they cling to their parents. My brother also wrote about this, how he clung to my father, who didn't really know how to deal with that. And these young children now are also clinging to their parents and have developed all kinds of fears that they never had, don't want to be left alone anymore, and so on. So I'm not sure all of it can be repaired. It's interesting. I noticed some of those reports, you know, not the joy in reuniting, but the clinging and the fear that the separation could happen again. Yeah, the fear that this kind of separation can happen again and just becoming more fearful. Children who were happy and, you know, well-adjusted, no longer being well-adjusted, but being frightened and clingy, needy. You begin this essay with a very powerful and I just want to read from it for a second. The events occurring, you say, make me weep and gnash my teeth with sadness and rage. And that's not just imagery you're using. It sounds like very literally, that's what it has made you do. Is that correct? I was enraged. I was furious. Yeah, and sad, of course. I mean, you know, I wondered what an ordinary citizen could do about this. Writing the article has made me feel a tiny bit better in that I feel I was fortunate in that I was able to do something in this particular battle. You know, usually we are totally helpless. I felt maybe 2% less helpless. 
You know, it's so interesting you say that because so many people are looking for ways to be productive and to get involved. And going back to your personal story in Israel, they call them the righteous Gentiles, but people who were willing to stand up at great, great risk to their lives to take children like you into their home and treat them as family. Tell me, do you remember what your parents said to you when they sent you off to this, what sounded like a loving family, but one that would not be targeted, hopefully, by the Nazis? I don't really remember what my parents said to me when I had to leave home. And the first place I went to was actually a children's home. And I knew they weren't trying to get rid of me. I mean, I kind of understood that this was necessary, but I don't remember anything my parents told me, no. I remember being in the children's home and I was not terribly unhappy. I think I probably missed my home, but I got along pretty well with the other children and I do remember being cold. <laughs> it was getting on towards October, November when I was there. That's when I first went into hiding in 1942. So that was the first place I went. And then my father heard, he had connections with the resistance, with the underground. He heard there was going to be a raid on the children's home, that it had been betrayed. There were other Jewish children there. And so he got me out of there, and I spent two weeks with friends of my parents who had a mixed marriage. They were German refugees who'd come to Holland. The husband was Jewish, the wife was not. And I spent about two weeks there. So then I went for a few weeks to our former nanny. I actually remember not liking it very much there. I was not a model child, shall we say, and she was pregnant and I think not feeling all that well. And I remember getting a lecture from her husband whom I liked a lot. So I had to leave there because one of the neighbors was a collaborator and it just wasn't safe. And then the man who was looking for a place for me to stay asked his brother. His brother was Dick Reinders and he was the mayor of a small village near The Hague. And he asked his brother and his sister-in-law whether they were willing to take in an eight-year-old girl. But then I was eight years old and they agreed. Even though he was mayor, he was also in the underground. I was homesick when I stayed there during the war. It was not my family. They were very good to me, but it was not my family. I don't know, I knew it was not my family, you know, I mean, but I really can't complain on the whole. So that's where I stayed from January 1943 until the end of the war and a few months afterwards until my father could get our home reorganized and so on. He had picked up my brother months before because my brother was liberated first. My brother didn't even know who he was. He just called back to his foster mother and said, there's a man here, a bald man here at the door with a car. And cars were a rarity, mm -hmm. you see. And I don't feel that I was close to my mother. Were you closer to your foster mother? 
No, because she wasn't my mother. Uh, but I like her a lot, and I think she's a wonderful woman. Um, I think I admire my mother a lot, and I, I, I never knew her as an adult. So I really don't know what she was really like. Did you feel totally vulnerable during these situations, or did you feel like these people were really trying to protect you? And do you remember anything they did to try to make you feel like things will be okay? Well, I felt we were all in this together. I mean, I felt pretty Dutch. I didn't feel particularly Jewish. I felt Dutch. And also, I felt that the war was going to end and we were going to beat the Germans. You know, it's so interesting because the two separate worlds, the world of the Nazi occupation and the Holocaust and these separations at the border, but you found a common element, an important common element of just the Absolutely. mere fact of children being separated, not by choice, from their parents. And a very big difference is then you had to be separated, and it was sort of made clear for your survival, and here the separations just seem so totally unnecessary. But the other thing you said that struck me, that phrase, we were all in this together, our nation could use that feeling. And let me ask you, because you've made a lot of your life, and just if you could share with us the education you pursued and the career you pursued. I was very fortunate. There was free public education here. I went to a, it was a good high school in those days, Jamaica High School. Where was that? Jamaica, New York. I went there in 1947. Did you speak English at that time? No, no, but within a year I spoke English. You know, I now have a master's degree in English literature, and I have been a copy editor here and so on and so forth. So you learned English quickly. You got a very good public education. You went on, you said, to get a master's in English literature. I got that at Queens College of the city of New York, and that was a free college education of excellent quality. I also have a master's in counseling psychology. In my 40s, I decided to change careers. So you changed careers from someone with a master's in English literature who was, you said, an editor? No, I was a teacher. I taught English. I taught at the French Lycée in New York. And then I also lived in Israel for eight years. Huh. Yeah, I moved around a lot. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I didn't feel at home in the United States. So I thought, you can't go back to Holland, you know, with American degrees, but you could use American degrees in Israel. So I went there, and first I taught in a few high schools, and then I taught for a few years at the Hebrew University and also the University of Tel Aviv, because you need a job and a half there to afford a car or to live. And then after eight years in Israel, I did go to Holland, and I taught there, first in a high school again, and then something opened up at the University of Utrecht, and I taught there for three years. And after that, I decided... And you know, you can't go home again is true. I couldn't go home again. Anyhow, I decided to change careers and I came to San Francisco and got a degree in counseling psychology. And then I decided I really needed to stop moving and I chose to stay here because I had family in the United States. I had no family in Israel. So in the end, I did stay in the United States. I'm not going to move anymore. I know that it's not the answer. 
I would prefer them to live maybe on both in both continents, like all of us, you know, wanderers. Live there a bit and live here a bit. And your counseling career, you say as a retired psychotherapist who has worked extensively with victims of childhood trauma, what did that refer to? A lot of people who are in therapy have had childhood trauma. It could be sexual abuse, abandonment by a parent or parents. I worked a lot with adult children of Holocaust survivors. And there you really saw how the effects of what had happened to their parents still affected them. So I think in the same way, what's happening to these children at the border now is not something that's going to be solved in 10 days after reunification. And I think the effects there will continue as well. Well, it's interesting. Yep. When parents suffer trauma, I guess, number one, it's hard to hide it and you don't necessarily want to hide it. Or you try to hide it and it cannot really be hidden. It comes out in other ways. The second and the third generations will suffer from what's happening now Hmm. at our borders. What this administration is doing is just really adding to the misery of humankind when it could be helping humankind. There were lifelong implications for you and for your brother, and is it your late sister? No, no, no. I'm the oldest and all three of us are alive. Got you. Clearly lifelong implications for the three of you. My sister lives in Washington. Well, she lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland, actually. She married a Dutch Jew. Our families knew each other in Amsterdam. And she had three daughters. She lived a very settled life. She got married very young. I think that she had lots of aftermath of the war. She she belongs to a group of child survivors, as I do too. And I think that helped her a lot. She used to be a very totally closed person. She still is fairly closed. And I think somewhat suspicious of people. And she has, I think, also had some serious problems with depression, which is not surprising. My brother, he had the most tumultuous life, I think, in a way as an aftermath, or the most obviously tumultuous life, let's say. He had a hard time keeping jobs. He's a very, very bright person. He had a hard time keeping jobs. He did marry. I never married. He married when he was 40, um, a Jewish woman. She is the child of survivors from Saloniki in Greece. And they have two sons. But you know, I was never really satisfied. I, I didn't have any permanent committed relationships with anyone, with any man. I mean, I think that my not marrying is certainly a result of the war. But you, unlike your brother, somehow managed, and again, as you suggest, maybe it was because you were the oldest child and maybe were able to withstand it a little better and understood it a little better, but you have gone on to clearly live an extremely productive life, certainly professionally, and an experience like that can be so crippling. How have you been able to thrive rather than merely hold on and survive? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I really thrived. I have a character trait, I'm very persistent, and 
I had to work. I had to support myself. You know, I had to survive. However, I think I could have achieved much more if I had not had those childhood experiences, if I had felt more confident. So it surprises me to hear you say that if I had had more confidence, because it certainly sounds between your two degrees, even though you had moved to other countries because you felt maybe that this wasn't really home, but just to pick up and move and to have those jobs at universities and other institutions and then to change gears in your 40s and become a therapist, that takes a lot of confidence, doesn't it? Well, you know, the changing careers, I could have always gone back to being a teacher if it didn't work out. I had inherited a little money from my grandfather, the one who survived. Yes. And I used it to go back to school. I'd been a teacher long enough, I felt. So... Yeah, well, I mean, I had innate confidence. I had that even as a child, that I could do things, but I didn't, you know, there were certain qualities I lacked. You know, I have to ask you, because you can laugh. Not everybody laughs easily. How did your sense of humor survive the trauma that you experienced? Well, Michael, I think sense of humor is innate, you know. It's like having blue eyes or a talent for languages. I'm sorry I can't give you, you know, a meaningful answer. I just like to laugh, and I really like good jokes a lot. And I like political jokes or political sexual jokes. That's <laughs> and on and on. Do you want to share your... <laughs> How old are you now? I'm 83 and a half or something. 83 and a half. I thank you for the... <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to be 84 in November. 84 is the new 54, as they say. <laughs> if my 84-year-old guest could give me her favorite political sexual joke, I think that we could make some headlines <laughs> with it. You know, I'm not so good at remembering them. I'm good at laughing at them. My brother is a good joke teller. Okay. <laughs> well, Yoka Verdoner, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. Conversations.